Hello, hello, we're on the Curious Bodhi, and I promised an episode about key Buddhist terminology. These are the terms we hear over and over again, and they're at the top of my list. So I'd like to present them in a very practical and down-to-earth way so that you may be able to see what is going on inside these terms, because sometimes the more you read, the less you know. So I hope this sparks some energy in you to actually understand what these terms mean. Remember, there are many sects and groups of Buddhists, Theravada, Mahayana, Zen, Dzogchen, but they all follow, hopefully, what the Buddha actually taught because it's up to the individual to figure it out and it's not reliant upon anyone or anything outside. In fact, that hinders one from finding the truth. It's about going in and seeing your experience and verifying. So see if you can verify some of these. The first term is emptiness or shunyata. This term has been presented historically by the Buddha and also by a philosopher named Nagarjuna who used these in slight variations, but mostly if we're heading away from the philosophical side and into the practical implications, it can be seen everywhere. What does that mean? So emptiness or shunyata is simply the raw perception of experience or a thing without assumptions and without overlay. This can be demonstrated by a simple story. I'm looking out of my window and a man is looking out of his window at the same woman walking by. I look at her and think, she's really pretty. And he looks at her and thinks, oh God, I can't stand her, she's so ugly. So we have to wonder, is she pretty or is she ugly? The answer is she's neither pretty nor ugly because she's empty of either of these qualities. She's inherently neither. This simple story has implications in a larger context. Firstly, because emptiness, when seen, from its proper viewpoint in one's own experience leads to a state of happiness and well-being, especially in meditation. Secondly, it has implications in the social world because it avoids extremes and opposites. Emptiness is the middle way, which the Buddha emphasized the middle way between nihilism and eternalism. So if you think of this woman, or if you think of being in the middle of, say, up and down, directly in the middle, you're neither up nor down, that's a pretty nice place to be. In a social context, there are implications because if somebody takes sides and we are to go to war over this woman in this story 
I think she's pretty and he thinks she's ugly. Because of our extreme nature, we are apt to fight about it instead of seeing the reality, which is emptiness. How many times throughout history has killing been justified based on extremes, such as cultural, tribal, religious, political, racial, or sexual identities? Even the smallest difference in one's mind compared with another mind can create disgust dislike, harsh criticism, harsh speech, and even violence. That's why emptiness or shunyata is one of the goals in Buddhism for a peaceful mind. Furthermore, there are many forms, animals, people, natural elements, and all the things we create but when we see the emptiness within them and we truly look, that means, and this is pretty radical, that neither good nor evil actually exist. These are extremes. So an evil person, such as Hitler, when empty, is just empty. He is the way he is. Now, if I hate Hitler, then he's evil to me. But there are some people, such as SS guys or neo-Nazis, who actually like Hitler. So we can't say that there's an intrinsic quality to one person, object, or thing. So emptiness sort of washes away the solidity and the name and form that we give objects and people. And that washing away of the solidity helps us understand that nothing is permanent. Everything is coming and going and it's always changing, even our own opinions and our own minds, and helps us accept the fact of reality so we can understand eventually and rest in the way things are without being rigid about how we would like them to be or how we see them because that creates resistance and tension in the mind. Now, a very beautiful place that you can find words on emptiness is in the Heart Sutra, Prajna Paramita Sutra. A good reference is buddhanet.net. Just look it up. And it's a very, very short passage, so it will probably take you five minutes. And this is respoken by Theravada Buddhism often. From emptiness, this is a good segue into non-duality. Duality means two, and non-duality means not two. This is the cream of the crop in all spiritual traditions. And I'm talking Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, any spiritual tradition that exists today exists because the spiritual master, the Jesus, the Buddha, the Krishna, was embodying non-duality. Non-duality is not limited to skin tone, 
nor geographical location. We sometimes have this picture that only Indian people get enlightened, or only the Tibetans, or only the Christians. But remember, as we talked about with emptiness, the true sage does not see any separation between self and other, or no intrinsic qualities, and also everybody is human with the exact same characteristics playing out in slightly different ways. For example, we all have a skeleton, hopefully, and some organs inside our bodies, but duality or two-ness is playing some of those people as doctors and some as housewives. So there is sameness and difference, but non-duality goes beyond both. In non-duality, superficial characteristics just fall away. So what is non-duality? It's hard to explain because there's no word that can actually explain it. Non-duality is pure existence without a second. It is not taking any idea or form to be the self or other. Nobody has or owns non-duality. It is the ever-present reality. It is not a concept. It is sometimes referred to as nothing, yet sometimes referred to as everything. In this seeming contradiction, it is both and or neither. That's why it's so tricky because the human mind, which is the judger and measurer of all things, cannot grasp it because it cannot be weighed or measured. Yet, it can be experienced. Why? Because in the same way you exist, right here and right now, non-dual awareness is also functioning or all of the sameness and differences could not exist either. Duality or two-ness is like a veil that covers our perception, cloaking out the oneness or one duality. It's not that non-duality is not present. It's just that our attention is always focused on the dual stuff. Right and wrong, you and me, this and that material object that we're playing with right now. And most importantly, our personal feelings and thoughts and emotions towards them that run through our consciousness all day, every day, literally without stop. Moreover, it's not even a state because states reside within the mind, a state of mind. Non-duality is what is, not what we project it to be on a constant basis. Lama Yishi, who I've mentioned before, a master who's now passed away, spoke on non-duality. He says, and I quote, What is meant by the term non-duality? All existing phenomena, 
whether deemed good or bad, are by nature beyond duality, beyond our false discriminations. Nothing that exists does so outside of non-duality. In other words, every existing energy is born within non-duality, functions within non-duality, and finally disappears into the nature of non-duality. We are born on this earth, live our lives, and pass away all within the space of non-duality. This is the simple and natural truth, not some philosophy fabricated by Maitreya Buddha. We are talking about objective facts and the fundamental nature of reality, neither more nor less." End quote. The reason non-duality is so tricky to understand is because it is likened to the motor underneath the hood of a car. You don't necessarily see the motor, but the motor is making the car run. And without the motor, you wouldn't be able to run the car. People and their perceptions are like the cars, but the motor is the non-duality or the actual reality making not only that car, but every car in the universe function. Non-duality is sometimes described as awareness. Awareness is the function that makes everything possible in front of whatever awareness is doing. So non-duality can also be seen like a person watching a movie. If the person is the non-dual awareness, the movie is like the person. Without the person watching the movie, the movie doesn't exist. So if the movie doesn't exist and you remove the movie, then you just have the awareness. And that is non-duality, folks. Nibbana. Nibbana is the Pali term for nirvana. This term is so like emptiness and so like non-duality that I won't elaborate too much in that way, but what I believe the difference is the word Nibbana was created by the Buddha to convey to people of his time what it was like to be awake. And I use the term awake because enlightened sounds too jewelry-ish, too fancy. Awake is more like alert to what is real and what is unreal. So the Buddha was awake. Remember, the Buddha awakened to Nibbana and he was actually in a kind of shock for a while not knowing how he would describe anything he experienced to anybody else because it was so unlike the normal state of awareness that he used to be in and that he saw other people in so he had to create words and terms and paths and all of this so people would understand. 
he actually admitted that his words are fabricated. The Eightfold Path is fabricated. It's not a set of rules and laws that you have to follow or else you go to hell, etc., etc. It was a way his intelligence could be given to other intelligences on the awakening process because without words, none of us would get anywhere. That's the way of the world. So, Nibbana, in Pali, is the ultimate liberation from suffering while still living as a human being. And one can attain Nibbana by following the Buddhist path. The Buddha defined it thus, quote, This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. AN 332 In Buddhism, a fully awakened being is called a Buddha. And also, there's an arhat. Buddha means one who is awake, and arhat is similar to a Buddha, However, the only difference, to my knowledge, is that a Buddha has the ability to know, feel, and intuit his insights to other people, while arhats are awake, but do not. Yet, they are both completely liberated and in Nibbana. Nibbana, then, is liberation. From what? Simply put, desire and ignorance. Where the average person identifying with their body-mind complex is always following dreams and desires, trying to catch the future or past, and is looking for pleasure, being afflicted by negative emotions like anger, jealousy, addiction, confusion, and so on. In Nibbana, there is none of this affliction nor preference that can touch a Buddha. When these states come, there is a noticing of them, but no clinging. There's no lasting effect on a Buddha, no aversion, no desire, no hatred, no delusions. Nibbana does not mean that one is a god. There are still thoughts going on, still feelings, emotions, and physical sensations. The body is still on earth. Once somebody reaches Nibbana, the body doesn't go poof into midair. However, what is transcended is the personal relationship with the body-mind complex. There's a story where a Brahmin came to the Buddha after he was awake, attracted by his energy. And the Brahmin asked the Buddha, Buddha, are you a god? The Buddha said, no, I'm not a god. The Brahmin asked, Buddha, are you a deva? A deva is like a godly being in another realm. And the Buddha said, no, I'm not a deva. And the Brahmin thought, Oh no, he must be evil then. 
Buddha, are you a hungry ghost? Are you an evil one? The Buddha said, no, I'm not that either. And then he said, Buddha, are you a human being? And the Buddha replied, no, I'm not a human being. What? The enormity of this is astounding. The Buddha walked around for 50 years teaching in Nibbana, yet he was still in a body, but he did not identify any longer as a human being. That's the transcendent nature of Nibbana. From the suttas, I have discovered what Nibbana feels like. It's described as the highest state of happiness and the most supreme state of bliss. Bliss here means the absence of mental suffering and mental illness. It is also characterized by completely ridding the three poisons which never touch a Buddha again, greed, hatred, and delusion. Therefore, Nibbana is the attainment of true happiness. On the way to Nibbana, there are four jhanas, which are technically mental absorptions. Jhanas are progressively reached via meditation and are like a staircase of bliss and peace born of concentration and withdrawal of the senses. Otherwise, this is known as going within. So there's four main jhanas and after one stage is reached in meditation they're progressively reached up and up until one reaches nibbana that's one way in nibbana it is said that moral perfection is reached and afflictive states disappear subsequently positive states are strengthened such as loving kindness compassion equanimity of mind and sympathetic joy or joy without a cause without hindrance without holding back and without limitation thus the arhat or buddha is disengaged with looking after or collecting things stuff houses cars money and they're disengaged with killing other living beings and that's why vegetarianism or veganism is so overtly stressed. They avoid stealing, lying, cheating, and other mental anxieties. The reason these are discarded is because there's no more fear of death. And the reason we do these crazy things is because ultimately we want to keep our ego safe. But in Nibbana, there's no reason for this. So sympathetic joy and caringness and being free from attachment to things just disappears on its own. Another characteristic is the attainment of realization. This is what insight is all about and really characterizes the spiritual path. Wisdom is attained through insight. Realization or insight is clear seeing and the reduction of mental fog. The Buddha describes this as, quote, the arising of the eye, wisdom, insight, knowledge, and light. 
Nibbana is complete insight slash realization to the effect that all defilements which cloud the mind are gone, done for, forever. Forever. On the way to Nibbana, one gains spontaneous and irregular insights, and we can do this through meditation. The leading path is Vipassana. Look up Joseph Goldstein to see his insight meditation sessions. And insights are like flickers of awareness that get you to see a glimpse of reality, but in Nibbana, this glimpse is permanent. Another aspect of Nibbana is clairvoyance. For example, we know about clairvoyance because the Buddha specifically obtained verification of rebirth and kama or karma through his wisdom eye upon liberation. He saw all his past and future lives, which is an ability we mortals haven't attained yet. This is why I believe the Buddha did not make rebirth and kama a necessity in his teachings to believe for others. When asked about these topics, he knew they would remain abstract concepts along the path and thus he urged people to focus on what they can attain in preparation for Nibbana. For example, compassion for others. He knew that understanding and realization don't come all at once, but through a gradual refinement process of the character and ego. So the Buddha does not make people believe this, that, and the other. He makes them verify in their experience, step by step by step by step until perfection or Nibbana is reached. Furthermore, a Buddha or Arhat is more aware of the inner body and the outer environment arising and passing away, and he takes great delight in this. Direct insight into the inner working of the body, the arising and passing away of perception, sensations, particles, consciousness itself, and everything at a cellular level is passing by. This is how sensitive a Buddha is. So his perception is very, very, very refined in Nibbana. And this is all done without clinging and to his greatest delight. Dukkha. Dukkha is a Pali word that does not have one exact translation in the English language. The closest words we find are dissatisfactoriness, stress or suffering. The first of the Four Noble Truths is the truth of dukkha. That's why people say life is suffering in Buddhism. Life is stressful. Life is dissatisfactory at its root. So because things are impermanent, they cause a reaction and that is stressful. When we cling to ideas about ourselves, thinking that they will never change, including ideas about our bodies, self-image, work or job, intellect, 
physical abilities or relationships and so on, then we risk losing them. This is dukkha. We want to keep something and hold something as our own. And this is stressful because the reality is that it will change. All relationships go through change. All jobs and all work go through change. All bodies go through change. Our self, our self-image goes through change many, many times throughout our life. So you can see and verify that everything is constantly rising and falling away. So that's why the Buddha created the Eightfold Path to lead one beyond the realm of change and clinging to the changeful and eventually be released from suffering or dukkha into Nibbana. The Buddha describes Nibbana as pleasant in the Nibbana Sutta. It reads, quote, This unbinding is pleasant, friends. This unbinding is pleasant, end quote. What the Buddha is referring to is how he is unbound, unwrapped in body, speech, mind, and consciousness to anything that causes suffering or dukkha, anything that is changeful. So the pleasures we experience in our daily lives, such as taking a long bike ride or being really involved in a creative project to the point where nothing else exists, these are worldly pleasures. The unbinding the Buddha is talking about goes beyond this type of pleasure. So it's a whole nother type of pleasure to be released from dukkha. So Nibbana is the opposite of dukkha in a way. No more gain or loss, coming or going, up or down, striving or non-striving. No more clinging to these opposites. Sankara or Samskara? Sankara is not a very popular word, but it is a very important word right next to the term ignorance in Buddhist terminology. Sankara is a word that means something like that which has been put together or that which puts together. They refer to all mental dispositions, otherwise known as habits. They are the main forces that bind us to this world. If you're a smoker, that's a sankara. I'm not saying that's good or bad because I'm also a smoker. It's just a habit. It's something that binds me to this world over and over again. Sankaras are also thoughts and feelings that play themselves out for any duration of time. For example, if you tend to get angry at a certain type of situation over and over, that's a sankara. Some lay dormant for a long time but can flare up when the situation reappears. So maybe you haven't seen your parents in over 15 years and didn't think about them once and suddenly you reconvene and you get into a conversation with them and you have a flashback from childhood and you start feeling guilty or shameful 
That's a sankara. They stem from ignorance. So the moment that we take birth and we are being conditioned by the body and our surroundings, the rise and fall of sankaras become active all the time. However, sankaras are impermanent and they can be overcome by not identifying with them as objective, but by letting them come and go. Therefore, the word sankara is very close to the word kama or karma. Kama is something that we have no control over. It wasn't our fault. It comes with birth. And sankaras are like the, if karma or kama is the sewing machine, then sankara is like the needle in the thread working its way through our material lives. And this habitual sort of mental formation in the material world is not permanent. It can be overcome. But the important thing is that sankaras, when left alone, play themselves out and eventually the steam is lost. That's how kama is relinquished and the end of kama can be seen. Another way to overturn sankaras or kama is to counteract them with other things. So if you want to stop smoking, then maybe take some chewing gum and after that replace it until it no longer needs to be replaced. In the same way, we can overcome major sankaras like anger by practicing cooling down in our minds just before the anger gets to express itself out of our mouths or trying boxing or doing some activity that releases our anger in a healthy way. And eventually our anger will disappear. If not in this lifetime, then in the next. These terms are not the only terms in Buddhism but they lay the foundations to be able to open up and to receive the rest of the terminology with some more ease. Anatta or not-self is another major one, but without understanding other terms such as emptiness and non-duality first, it's jumping head over heels. Other terminology that might be recognizable are things like Deva and Dakini, which denote beings in other realms that the Buddha saw with his wisdom eye. And they're really not that important to understanding Buddhism. So here we lay the foundations, the framework, and I encourage you to go do your homework, do some research, and really meditate upon what these mean in a practical way for your life. See you next time. Peace, take care, love from London.